You are listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Well, good morning, church. Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. For those of you who know me well, you know that my um, interests center around research projects, both conceptual research and empirical research. I've always been fascinated by various studies uh, across various disciplines, especially though as it pertains to church. Statistical analysis, research concerning church is something that has always fascinated me. Uh, and there are always projects going on. There are a lot of institutions that, that do uh, really high-level research that is really telling for us, that give us a lot of information. Pew Research puts out some good work. Lifeway Research has some great stuff out there. Occasionally, we're treated to groundbreaking research projects. Projects that take years and sometimes decades that uncover information for us that is just tremendously impactful, that that has a a significant impact on the way we think about church or ministry in uh, particularly the United States. We were treated to such a research project this month. Zondervan published a book. uh, It was put out by Jim Davis, Michael Graham, and Ryan Burge. The book is titled The Great Dechurching. Who is leaving? Why are they going? And what will it take to bring them back? And this study uncovered the largest religious movement in American history that has been happening over the last 25 years. Research concluded that this movement was larger than the number of individuals who came to faith in the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. So if you factor everyone who became a Christian during those two Great Awakenings and the Billy Graham Crusades, this current religious movement that's been happening over the last 25 years is larger than the number of people who came to faith in all three of those uh, movements. The devastating part about this is that this large religious movement has left the church, not joined it. Churches are losing people, and they have been for 25 years. Uh, There are some out there that have suggested that it's the larger churches that are primarily losing people. The megachurch movement, right, are finally losing people. People are seeing it for what it is, whatever that means, and people are fleeing them left and right. But this study revealed actually that is not true, uh, that the opposite is true, that nearly 70% of churches in America have less than 100 weekly attendees. Think about that for a minute. 70% of churches in America have 100 people or less in weekly attendance. And it's these churches that are, statistically speaking, the most negatively impacted by people walking away. This so-called de-churching has affected all denominations as well with mainline denominations being the most impacted. So to give you a few statistics there, Evangelical Lutheran has seen a 41% decline in the last 25 years. Presbyterian USA, the PCUSA, has seen a 58% decline in the last 25 years. The Episcopal Church, which is at one time the most influential denomination in the United States, has a little over a half a million in weekly attendance in the entire country with only 1.5 million total members. By contrast, just to give you uh, an idea of 1.5 million, what that means, the Southern Baptist Convention, which has also seen significant losses over the last 25 years, still holds over 13 million members. 
So almost 13 times more than the Episcopal Church. It's a complicated issue. It's one that uh, involves several factors for why people are leaving. It's not all church hurt, although that is a part of it. There is also very practical reasons. People move, couldn't find churches. COVID, obvious, a, a huge impact as well. Some of the findings that jumped out to me, though, as I was thinking about our series through Acts this morning is the number of churches that have opened and or closed over the last 25 years. This trend is very, very um, concerning, I think, for all of us. In 2014, for example, 3,700 churches closed their doors in 2014, but 4,000 churches opened. So we saw a net gain of roughly 300 churches that year. By contrast, in 2019, 4,500 churches closed their doors and only 3,000 opened with a net loss of 1,500 churches in 2019. Bear in mind, what is that before? COVID, which supremely impacts these numbers. This issue of the shrinking number of churches in America is a problem that, in part, I want to address this morning. It's not uncommon for churches to emphasize evangelism, and we should emphasize evangelism. It's partially how we carry out the Great Commission, right? Jesus says, go and make disciples. You can't do that without uh, making disciples. You have to do evangelism. If you're going to baptize them and teach them all that he's commanded you got to make them first, and that happens through evangelism. Evangelism matters a great deal. However, where there are believers in a specific geographical area, there should also be churches. And while churches like to emphasize evangelism, it's far less common to hear churches emphasize church planting. We like to think about reproducing our own faith and personal relationships, but not so much about reproducing faith centers. We're interested in seeing new birth in people, but not so much in local churches. And yet, when we read the missionary journeys of Paul, both are present. Paul is interested in both of them, and so we need to talk about both of them as well. So if you have your Bibles open to Acts 17, uh, we will begin there. Acts 17 uh, continues in this second missionary journey of Paul and Silas as they are in Macedonia. Last week, if you remember... They stopped into a city called Philippi. It was there that a a young woman named Lydia came to faith. We also see Paul and Silas have this demonic encounter with the serpent spirit, followed by a divine intervention where uh, an earthquake uh, occurs when they're in prison. All of their cell doors and their chains are broken. They're freed. This actually leads to the jailer and his entire household believing the gospel and being baptized. Now, after that takes place, the city magistrates come. They release Paul. They say they're sorry. Paul gets a little cheeky with them. It's quite good. back and read that if you haven't. They return to Lydia's house, and at this point, uh, Lydia's home is functioning as a small church, like a local church. It's not only where Paul and Silas have been gathering, but all of the new believers there in Philippi as well. And from there, after saying goodbye, they continue on their journey, and that brings us to our text here in Acts 17. And this passage is great because it not only continues to develop Paul and Silas's story, But it also provides a nice framework, I believe, for how to multiply a ministry. If we're going to think about how a church could multiply itself, how the ministry of that church could could reach beyond the four walls of the building that it meets in and impact other communities, this is a great framework for understanding what needs to happen in order for that to occur. I want to ask the question this morning as we come to this text, how can we multiply the ministry at City on a Hill? 
If you were here at uh, Year Lead last weekend, which my goodness, I mean a week ago, that feels like forever ago. That was seven days ago. You know that City on a Hill is growing. We're multiplying. We continue to multiply. Acts 17 provides a, a nice framework for what needs to happen in order for that trend to continue, in order for us to steward what God is doing well in our midst. And there are a few things that we need to do in order for that to happen. Here's the first thing. In order to multiply the ministry, we need to commit to a plan. We need to commit to a plan. Paul and Silas very clearly have a plan throughout the book of Acts, and they pretty much stick to it throughout the entirety of all their missionary journeys. Look at verses one through four. It says, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not, <coughs> and not a few of the leading women. So there's a pattern here that you begin to see throughout this missionary journey. You can see it unfold here. You can see it unfold again once they leave Thessalonica. They go to another city called Berea. Look at verses 10 through 12. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. There it is. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. It's the same pattern in both cities. Where does Paul start? The synagogues. Why? Why does he do that? Verse 2 tells us because it was his custom to do so. In other words, this was his usual behavior. It was predictable. He had a plan and he committed to the plan. And notice what his plan entails. There are two things that Paul commits to, and these two things I believe are necessary for us as well if we want to multiply what God is doing here beyond these four walls. The first one is, uh, probably unsurprisingly, evangelism. Multiplying the ministry requires evangelism. But Pastor Derek, what is evangelism? I'm so glad that you asked. Evangelism is one of those terms that is much like missions in the modern church movement, where it is so commonly used, we throw it around all over the place, and it can mean so many different things depending on who you're talking to. So evangelism, let me tell you what it's not before we talk about what it is from the text, okay? Here's what it is not. Evangelism is not simply spending time with non-Christians. That's not evangelism. We sometimes get this idea that we're doing evangelism if we like go to lunch or hang out or talk about culture or sports or movies or music or whatever in public with non-Christians, as if them merely talking to a Christian means they're being evangelized. You're not that special, okay? Your faith is not overwhelmed like Moses with an unveiled face shining the glory of God onto them, all right? Let's be honest about that. That is not evangelism. It's not inviting them to church or inviting them to a small group. Now, to be clear, you should invite them to church, and you should invite them to a small group. There's a lot of statistics that, that 
that actually demonstrate that coming to a small group, specifically a Sunday school, or we call it life Bible study here, is, is really effective in bringing people into a church setting and having them hear the gospel and, and hear the truth of God and, and, and potentially surrendering their life to Jesus. But that is the invitation is in and of itself not evangelism. It's good. It's not evangelism. Evangelism is not, this is going to shake some of you, it's not sharing your testimony. Again, your testimony matters. It's a powerful tool alongside evangelism. But your story, hear me, does not have the power to save. If you tell someone your story, that does not open the door for salvation. And that really is, I believe, the defining factor for what evangelism is. Evangelism in the Greek New Testament comes from the Greek term euangelion. It's a word that literally means good news or gospel. To evangelize is to gospelize someone. So let me give you a truth. Evangelism has the power to save because the gospel has the power to save. That's the testimony of Romans 1.16. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of my testimony, of my invitation to church. No, of the gospel. For it is the gospel that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes Evangelism has the power to save because the gospel has the power to save. Therefore, evangelism is only evangelism if it includes the gospel. Now, how do you share the gospel? That's a good question. Verses two through four provide a lot of clarity, I believe, for how we do this. There are four verbs that we notice in Paul's uh, interactions here, in his actions in verses two through four, that paint a really nice picture of what evangelism looks like. Notice the first verb. It says that he reasoned with them in verse 2. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. This is the Greek term dialegomai. Uh, it, it's part of what it means to do evangelism is simply dialogue or discuss the scriptures, have a conversation, begin a conversation with people about the Bible. Paul's method was to reason with them, to converse with them, to discuss with them the truths in the scripture concerning salvation and sin in Christ Jesus. So we begin with a dialogue, a conversation. Notice the next two verbs in verse three, explaining and proving. Verse three says that he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. That term explaining, it's the Greek term dianoigo. It's a word that means to open up or to reveal something. In other words, Paul is not simply talking about the scriptures with non-believers. He's opening up the meaning of them. He's explaining in a, in, a, in a way that makes them understand what it means. In other words, he's interpreting it. He's giving meaning. He's assigning meaning to it. That term proving, paratithemi, it's a word that means to lay or place beside. It conveys the idea of taking the evidence from Scripture. So you open the Bible. You open a discussion. You, you interpret it for them. And once you have given meaning to what it is that you're talking about, you lay it before them. You present it before them for consideration. Here you go. Do something with that, right? And then look at the fourth verb. We find it in verse four that many of them were persuaded. The Greek term patho, to convince. There, were, there was something convincing about the method that Paul used in discussing scripture with non-Christians. In other words, understand the succession of events here in Paul's methodology. You begin a dialogue about scripture with a non-Christian. 
You give explanation to the meaning behind the scripture that you are talking about. You make an appeal to consider the implications of that scripture for themselves in a way that is persuasive that they might believe the gospel and be born again. It would have been very hard to argue with Paul. He was a very convincing man, wasn't he? Because he had a method. It wasn't just sort of like kind of feeling it out and talking about whatever comes to his mind. No, he goes to the scripture, he gives meaning, he lays it before them. What are you going to do with that? In a way that's very convincing. Well, I better do something. Yeah, you better. What are you going to do? You better believe. You better believe the gospel. You can do that today. And they were persuaded. Look, this should challenge us. This should challenge us. We have settled in the evangelical church for a weak understanding of what it means to do evangelism. If what you are doing with non-Christians in your life doesn't involve discussing, reasoning, explaining, proving, persuading from the scripture, it's not evangelism. It's probably great conversation because you're such an interesting person. (laughs) But it's not evangelism. If we're gonna multiply the ministry of City on a Hill, we have to be committed to a plan. And that plan must include evangelism. It must include reasoning with the lost through the scriptures. How well are we doing this? And by we, I don't mean the staff at City on a Hill. I mean we, us, in this room, the body of Christ. How well are we doing evangelism? And if we're not doing it, why aren't we doing it? Why are we not burdened more to carry out the Great Commission, to see the lost come to faith in Jesus? Paul was committed to a plan that included evangelism. But not only that, there's a really, really important second part of this, and that is the follow-up to evangelism, which is discipleship. Look at verse 4 again. We'll read the whole thing this time. It says, and some of them were persuaded. By the way, some of them were persuaded. You're going to swing and miss. You're going to strike out occasionally. Okay? And that's all right. Batting 300 in the majors, you get the Hall of Fame for that, right? So so just keep that in mind. You're going to swing and miss a lot at evangelism. Some of them, he says, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Paul, in other words, did not engage in drive-by evangelism. Where he preached the gospel and he saw people believe, he wasn't like, all right, good luck, on to the next one, let's go. No, they joined him, it says. He continued to instruct and mentor them in the scriptures. He continued to pour into them and invest in them and and, and build them up into maturity in Christ. And this brings up a really good point. I want to give you a truth. It's going to challenge some of you. If you have no intention to disciple a person, you have no business evangelizing them either. If you have no intention to disciple a person, you should not evangelize them either. I hear about so many revivals on the internet and through various different websites that I follow of the 700 believe the gospel, 1500 believe the gospel. And I immediately think, who is discipling these people? What is happening to them? It's irresponsible. I think it was George Whitfield, one of the great first Great Awakening uh, evangelist preachers, pastors, who was asked one night after a great revival. They said, how, so how successful was it? How many people believed? And George Whitfield responded, we'll know more in six months. 
It's easy to get a high after an evangelism. It's easy to manipulate people emotionally into believing. What are they doing six months from now? That is going to tell the, the story of how genuine their faith really is after a conversion. We ought to be interested in discipleship as much as evangelism. Evangelism is crucial to multiplying a ministry, but without discipleship, it won't mean much. It won't mean much at all. Je Jesus didn't tell his people, go and make converts of all the nations. He said, go and make disciples of the nations. Baptize them. Teach them to be obedient to the truth of God's word. That's how you know you've made a disciple. Have they been baptized? Do they desire to follow the will of God as revealed through the scriptures? Are they living it out the day after or a week after or six months after or a year after? The faith is not a sprint. It's a marathon. If we want to see City on a Hill multiplied, we need to be committed to sharing the gospel, to training up new believers in the, in, in, into a mature picture of a follower of Jesus. Multiplying means committing to a plan. Secondly, we need to anticipate opposition. We need to anticipate opposition. If we're going to multiply what God is doing here, be prepared for opposition, right? Verses five through nine. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest... They let them go. So apparently Paul and Silas had stirred up so much controversy from their preaching, so much so that the Jews formed a mob and began a counterattack against all of their ministerial efforts. And it says that they targeted a man named Jason. Now, what do we know of this Jason? We know very little of him from the, the scriptures, but what we do know is that he, like Lydia in Acts 16, was someone who came to faith and opened up his home to not only Paul and Silas, but to the other local believers who had come to faith recently and formed what looks like some sort of, of, of home church, of a house church, of a fledgling church plant. And so because they couldn't find Paul and Silas, they shipped them off to Berea. They attacked Jason instead. Now, if you flip down to verse 13, once again, after Paul and Silas leave Thessalonica, they move into a city called Berea. Verse 13 says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. They're like, we're going on a road trip. Paul's over there now. We got to go shut that down as well, right? Traveling protest. Traveling mob of people. So Paul and Silas, they leave Thessalonica. They go proclaim the gospel in Berea after opposition breaks out in Thessalonica and the opposition follows them. You can't escape it. You need to know that multiplying ministry is going to create opposition in your life. It's just gonna happen. All throughout the book of Acts, Christians who are faithful to the gospel ministry face multiple forms 
of opposition, whether it be through angry non-believers or through demonic presence or a little bit of both, probably more than likely in each of those instances, whenever you are proclaiming Christ and standing for the truth in a world that is hostile towards the Christian faith, you can expect difficulty as you carry it out. It's going to happen. We face it all the time here. I mean, think about for a moment, those of you who like sports, Think about going to a Philadelphia Eagles game in Philadelphia with a Dallas Cowboys jersey on. The people in Philadelphia are savages. They're going to burn you alive. Unlike us very well-spoken and well-mannered Dallas people. Dallas, exactly. It's Arlington. But all that to say, you can understand how opposition in a, in, a, in a hostile area is not going to work out well for you if you are promoting something that is antagonistic to what that culture is dealing with. We face it all the time here. We've had threat, I've had threats against myself. Many of you have had threats against yourself. People on the staff had. Part of being a Christian in, in a hostile world against the gospel means living and anticipating opposition. Paul in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, when you're engaging in evangelism and discipleship and you're met with fierce opposition, don't be like, well, why is this happening? Don't be shocked. Now, by the way, I don't know how this plays out with Christian nationalism. If the nation is supposed to be getting better and better, I guess Paul and Peter are wrong here, right? It's going to get worse for you as you continue this. Jesus himself in John 15, 18 said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. In other words, don't be surprised that they hate you because you follow me and they hated me too, long before they knew about you. Now, here's the question that I think is more important than anything else for our, for our context this morning, is not, is persecution or is opposition going to come your way? I, I think that's very clear, and it's modeled throughout the New Testament. The real important question for the church is how do you respond to opposition when it comes your way? What do you do about it? Do you fight fire with fire? Do you punch back under the banner of freedom? Stand in your ground? I mean, these are cultural things that, that really sort of resonate with us, right? What did Jesus say? But I say to you, shoot your enemies and curse those who persecute you. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke 6.22, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and they revile you and they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. I mean, this is counterintuitive, is it not? Being hated and reviled and excluded and slandered, that doesn't sound like blessing Jesus. What do you mean? That sounds like weakness. What did Paul say about weakness? 2 Corinthians 12, 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, 
calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As the ministry multiplies here, you need to be aware it's not going to be smooth sailing. We're going to face opposition along the way. We need to understand this, not only be aware of the opposition, but here it is, celebrate and rejoice when it happens. Because when it happens, Jesus says, now you're blessed. Now you have the blessing of God on you. Because when you're weak, that's the moment you become strong. We commit to a plan. We anticipate the opposition. Last, we develop leadership. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So because the opposition is so strong against Paul specifically, they immediately put him on a boat by night to go to Athens. Man, you, ne- you need to get out of here. You left Thessalonica. They came to, to Berea after you. We need to get you on a boat and get you to Athens. These people are relentless. Opposition is going to continue. You need to get out of here. But understand, since they had been both in Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi before that, many people had come to faith and were now being discipled. And as a result of that, churches had formed in both of those cities. And of course, we know that at least for uh, Philippi and Thessalonica, Paul eventually writes letters back to those churches, the Philippians and the Thessalonians, right? The Bereans, we don't have any letters to, but they are mentioned in other places. So there are churches that are formed in these cities. Now, if you know anything about operating a church, you know that leadership is crucial, to its survival, especially in the early stages of its formation. And now with Paul gone, churches were gonna wither away without strong leadership to continue the discipleship process. And Paul knew that, and he had already been, therefore, developing Silas and Timothy for such an occasion. Because Silas and Timothy had worked side by side with Paul, they had watched him in action, they knew how to do what was necessary, they were there to stand in the gap in that leadership role to continue the efforts of growing and ministering to and developing these churches. He had trained them. They had, they had observed what Paul did. He had observed what they had done. He had likely given feedback along the way. They knew how to do what he did. And we know that both of these individuals, Silas and Timothy, play major roles throughout the development of the New Testament church as the rest of the scriptures teach. Silas, who is also sometimes referred to as Silvanus, travels with Paul extensively through his missionary journeys. He acts later as a personal courier for the letters that Paul writes to the individual churches. Of course, Timothy is a major character in the New Testament, a recipient of 1st and 2nd Timothy, the letters, the two of the, the three pastoral epistles. He is like a son to Paul. Paul refers to him as his son and that he is like a father to him. Uh, Timothy, we know, eventually becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church, likely the one who received the letter to the Ephesians written by Paul, one of the most important New Testament letters in the New Testament, theologically speaking. Paul developed Timothy. Timothy was ready to stand in the gap and do what was necessary in Paul's absence. And you know, there's a, there was a, a, just a, a real sense of joy, if I'm being honest with you, that I had this week in preparing this message. Because God just reminded me as I was working through this, 
I'm a Timothy. I learned from Dr. Reeves for many years here. I watched him. I observed him. I was given opportunities to lead in various capacities. I received feedback along the way from him. We preached many years here together on this stage. I learned more about preaching with him in those years than I ever did in any seminary class. I believe, listen, I believe in leadership development because I'm a product of leadership development. One of the reasons City on a Hill has continued to grow and will continue to grow, Lord willing, has been because of James' commitment to develop leaders who could carry the torch long after he let go of it. I'm a product of this stuff. And I intend to continue it as well. This fall, October 1st, when we switch to three services, we will be uh, beginning a months-long study (laughs) through the gospel according to Mark. A verse-by-verse study through the gospel according to Mark. And in the fall, when the timing is right, you are going to see once or twice me on the stage team teaching again, only this time not in the role of Timothy, but in the role of Paul. I have two young men that I am beginning to work with that I want to begin to instruct and give feedback to and encourage and build up and mentor in the practice of preaching that sense a call of God on their lives to preach so that when the time is right, whenever God calls them to their next station, wherever that is, they're going to be not only ready to preach, but to do so under the banner of the hospital church mentality. One of the ways that we multiply the ministry here at City on a Hill is by multiplying the leadership of City on a Hill. I want very badly, I pray for regularly, God to multiply this ministry. I want to see it happen. I've I've been impacted by the help, hope, and healing of Jesus. I want to see as many other people impacted by it as well. I want to see more addicts come into our church and be freed from that to taste freedom in Christ. I want to see more sinners who are broken, who have been rejected at other churches, who have been run off by other churches, come in and get a taste of the grace of God. If every person, understand this, if every person in this building, in this room, right now, made the commitment to pick one person in your life and begin sharing the gospel, reasoning, explaining, opening up, revealing, persuading through the scriptures, and that person came to faith, and you began discipling that person, we would immediately, tomorrow, need a bigger building. Do the math. We would immediately need a bigger building, because we're not going to a fourth service, FYI. Let me just assuage your fears real quickly. (laughs) One of the questions my wife had over uh, the, the weeks leading up to year lead is like, honey, when's enough? Where do you draw the line? What about a fourth service? What about a fifth service? What about a sixth service? And these are good questions. How many services are too many? For me, three is the line we draw. And the reason for that is if we grow into three full services, if, if the ministry here continues to multiply in a way that is just is unstoppable and we grow into three full services, then we will begin by God's grace in some manner of a miracle, raise money to build a final worship center out on the disc golf course with about a thousand seats in it. I love disc golf. I love Jesus more. (laughs) I would love to see that happen. Go to one big service, celebrate with God's people. It would be amazing. That's down the line. That sounds crazy. Maybe it is crazy. But listen to me. It's not impossible. It's not even improbable. 
The question is, do we want that? Is it what we really want? And if it is, then the question becomes, well, what are we waiting for? We have a plan. We evangelize. We discuss. We explain. We reason. We persuade. We invite people to believe the gospel. And then we disciple them through the various ministry efforts here at City on a Hill. We anticipate the opposition. We know it's coming. We know it's going to happen. And when it does, we rejoice. I would love to see us in a night of worship celebrate under the banner of we've been persecuted. (laughs) What's the theme for night of worship this year? People hate us. Praise God. Let's go. And then we develop leadership. We develop teachers and preachers. We develop freedom group facilitators. We develop mentors and disciple makers. We develop drug addicts and sex addicts and alcoholics and broken people who the church at large rejects. And we say, come in and let God use your brokenness to reach other people with that same kind of brokenness. We know how to multiply. The question is, do we want to multiply? I do. So here's what I want to do. I want to begin or end rather our time with a moment of prayer. And I want you to ask God specifically, what would you have me do here to multiply the ministry? What's my part, God? What is my part? What do I need to do to begin to pray for and and share the gospel with someone else? Who do I need to pray for and plan to share the gospel with? Who who do I need to get connected into the ministries here? Who do I know who is a, a victim of some kind of trauma or abuse or hurt or pain or familial breakdown? Who do I know that is chemically dependent or addicted to something that needs Jesus Christ? And then go to work. Go to work on them. But let the Lord reveal that to you. What's your part? Let me give you a moment to pray and then I will close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, for the Son, we are grateful. For his mercy and kindness upon us, we thank you. And for the Spirit that you have given, who provides wisdom and clarity and power to proclaim things and to do things unto your glory that we could not do on our own, we thank you. As we sit here in prayer and we hear the thunder, we're reminded of your infinite goodness to this creation that you so love and will one day redeem. But in the meantime, God, as 
we carry out the ministry and the purpose that you have placed within each of us, would you give us further clarity in how we might influence others, reach others, persuade others, not by our power, but by your power, that we would give understanding to the scriptures, not because of our wisdom, but the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, that we might see the kingdom of God increased here in the east side of Fort Worth. That city on a hill would live up to its namesake to be like a city set upon a hill that wanderers, those who are lost, see and seek refuge in. I thank you for every testimony here, every life impacted here. We take no credit for it. It's all you. It's only ever you. Every good and every perfect gift comes from your hands and your hands only. And so God, more than anything, would you just fill our hearts with gratitude this morning that we might call you God and that we might call this place our home. And with gratitude, would you send us to reach others, whoever that might be, However many times they might have been rejected in other places, God, would you make this place a place they find hope that is eternal. How we love you and we thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.